This is episode number 38 with Dr. Kristen Keim, Body Image and Disordered Relationships with Food and Exercise. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. You need to have the surroundings to keep you at least minimize it for you going to the dark side. You know, like I say, like there's light and there's dark sides of sport, but there is a lot of darkness. And with that comes this obsessive and distorted view on what's healthy physically and emotionally. And that, you know, more hours, more pedaling is going to make me better. It's false. Guys, I'm really thankful that you're here. And if you're new, welcome to the show. It means the world to me that you guys are showing up each week and listening to all of my episodes and that they are bringing value to the world. And that is why I do this. So if you're enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review and share it with your friends. Help us grow the show that more people can be positively impacted. Today's guest is a really special person. She is my personal sports psychologist and also, I'm happy to say, my friend. Dr. Kristen Keim. She is a well-known sports psychologist and works with some of cycling's top athletes. She has her doctorate in clinical psychology and her master's in sports psychology. And guess what? She was my very first podcast guest back in May. She was episode number one. People are still going back and listening to episode number one of the show with her because that episode was very impactful and led to a really positive change in a lot of people's lives. So if you're interested in listening to it, the link is in the show notes. But Chris Keim is a very passionate person and very interested in helping others. She said in her bio, During my competitive cycling career, I started to understand how the mind and body worked in a way that could help and or hinder one's performance. Being a part of a team was something I enjoyed, but it also opened the door for me to help others reach their full potential. Honestly, I would rather suffer on a climb for a teammate and help them stay calm and collected so they could go for the win. This mindset helped me realize that perhaps my purpose was not behind the handlebars, but rather behind an athlete client offering them psychological and emotional support. This is what I refer to as a human side of sport and performance, remembering that athletes are people who have feelings and imperfections. Dr. Chris is an expert and is well-versed in a lot of topics that come up daily with their clients. This episode is really interesting. We go deep into one of those really, really important topics body image and disordered relationships with food and exercise. And this topic isn't something that we talk about regularly in our daily lives. And I want to open up a dialogue because everybody is affected by it by some degree. I'm so thankful to have the privilege to know and work with Dr. Kime. She's definitely been my rock when things have gotten hard and has brought me back to even keel. As athletes and even as human beings, we have all had our struggles with wanting to look good, wanting to feel good, wanting others to think that we are good, and trying to have a healthy relationship with food, and also trying to have a healthy relationship with exercise. Some of us might not even realize it, but our relationship with exercise could be unhealthy. We just simply call ourselves passionate endurance athletes, but there is a balance between the obsession and being healthy. And I can honestly say from personal experience that I've been on both sides of the equation. 
In today's show, we talk about how to cultivate a positive body image, our self-worth, and how it can be dangerously tied to how we look, what a disordered relationship with food or exercise even looks like, and how we can work on it, and the importance of having people to talk to about these things. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I hope it brings a lot of value to you, and I hope it opens up a dialogue for those of us who might feel isolated in this topic. It's been awesome to see everybody's activity on my Facebook group that you are all invited to, the Plant Powered Tribe. And you can go to a Plant Powered Tribe with Sonia Looney on Facebook, or you can look in the show notes for a link. But you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat a plant-based diet. It's just a space where we can add in healthy fruits, vegetables, legumes, share recipes, share stories, and just support one another in our quest to live a healthy life. And what it means to live a healthy life can mean different things to different people, but I just wanted it to be a space where it's all about inclusivity. Before we get into it, I want to talk about our podcast sponsor, Health IQ, a really innovative company. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. I think this is awesome. Life insurance is one of those things that we all need as adults. There's a lot of positive benefits to life insurance, but Health IQ actually helps us save money when we take care of ourselves. There aren't very many companies out there that reward us for being athletes and health conscious. They have an online quiz. And And also look at things like your Strava or your race results and also ask about your diet to assess where you qualify. People save up to 33% on their life insurance. So if you're interested, you can go online, healthiq.com slash Sonia to get a quote or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. All right, let's get into it. Here is Dr. Kristen Keim. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Chris. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. I think we're near or around episode 40. And last time we chatted, it was episode one. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't realize it was 40. But I mean, I guess I, you know, I follow and I've listened to all of them. So I guess now I think about it, that probably is about right. Congrats. That's a lot since March on top of everything else you have going on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's been a really cool journey. And the best thing about podcasting is you get to talk to so many awesome people and you just get to feed your knowledge, feed your I don't know. I sound like a nerd, but I love learning. So that's my best favorite, best thing about podcasting. Oh, I, I think so too. And I think, um, you know, what I, with all my clients, a lot of them love them as well. And so I've really enjoyed, you know, just having clients who might not even realize I've ever even, you know, you interviewed me because they're just catching on at different parts of your season and stuff. So, uh, it's, they've really been a lot helpful and you often don't even know how many people are being helped or getting a new lens on things by having these in-depth discussions. Even if you feel like they might be kind of nerdy, I think a lot of us are in the same boat when we're endurance athletes or anyone who would be maybe open to listening to your podcast. So keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so today I really wanted to zero in on a topic because last time it was we did a kind of a general bird's eye view of some sports psychology topics, but I really wanted to talk about body image and eating disorders because mm-hmm. it's mostly athletes that listen to this show, but every single person has felt that feeling of, oh, I, I'm not good enough because I don't look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And nobody really talks about it very much. So I think it's really important to start a conversation. And I feel like in a way, it's kind of like depression. We're trying to talk about depression and kind of normalize it. Yeah. And pull the lid off of it. So people feel comfortable mm-hmm. talking about it. And I also mm-hmm. think that we should be doing that with body image and eating disorders and having healthy slash unhealthy relationships with food. 
I completely agree. And that's why when you asked me to possibly come back, um, you know, I, I, I'm always eager to talk about that. And, you know, I, I joke and say, get on my soapbox, um, but I will, I will be on my soapbox if it takes another 50 years until we can at least start to end the stigma and have these healthy, and it's not just for athletes. Like it's really important that the whole infrastructure, that parents, that coaches, that team directors, you know, athletic trainers, even to this point, I'm going to start working with like acupuncturists and chiropractors and physical therapists and people who are all in contact with athletes to be educated for signs and symptoms and warning signs of any mental illness. And yeah, body image is not a disorder per se, but it is laced in anxiety, maybe depression, low self-esteem, and can often possibly lead into a clinical eating disorder as well. Yeah. And you mentioned there's a gray area in there where people may or may not have an eating disorder. So, you know, mm-hmm. first I, I want to start talking about just the the pressure as a cyclist to be skinny or even like lean, but you can mm-hmm. still have an eating disorder and be lean. So how do we manage that? Because we're looking up to all these people who are fast and like mm-hmm. a lot of people look up to Tour de France riders and they're all like very skinny. So how do we perceive what is good and what is bad in terms of body image as athletes? Yeah, it is a somewhat complicated situation. So, you know, one main factor, even why I decided to get my doctorate and go down the path of more clinical lens with psychology and hoping to, you know, help the athletic population is this idea of eating disorders. And, you know, the, the challenge is the context of the culture, right? So, you know, if a client, if even if you, looking at you, you know, really healthy woman, but if you go in and start talking about how you have to monitor your weight and monitor your diet and lean out and maybe cut, you know, caloric intake and all this stuff, like it could be, there could be some signs that, oh, this is kind of disordered, right? If it wasn't, if you weren't working with a psychologist who kind of understand the context, right? So even though your activities of daily living and, you know, you're not stressing and you're not getting down to like too low of a BMI and things, like it still could look like there's something disordered going on, right? So, but I'm trained with the lens to be understand like, okay, there is a place that, yeah, we all know you have to be, you know, what we want to call lean or, you know, I, I like that word a little bit better than skinny or thin and then working with a weight number. I mean, you know, I work with athletes of all levels and I get it like power rate ratio. And now we have this science and with more science becomes more challenges and issues, I think, with disordered eating. And now we have, you know, all kinds. It's not just anorexia or bulimia or exercise induced. We there's a lot of binge eating now that we're seeing with athletic population. But I think, again, it's a skewed view that a lot of it still dates back to the doping era, era where everyone started to think that you had to be this thin to race. And now I think we're starting to understand that there's strength and muscle mass and being lean where you still can be at a healthier weight and just empowering athletes to understand. Because no matter what, to some degree, as an athlete at the elite level like yourself, and, and athletes that are, you know, U23s or collegiates trying to go into the professional, you know, you're honestly, you're not healthy, right? So, cause you're doing all this damage to your body and this is outside of the whole realm of what you're eating, right? But what we do want to control is having the food be something as fuel and having a really good lens on it. And so that's why I've really started to encourage at a 
younger age and at, you know, NeoPro or whatever is to start working with sports physiologists who specialize in nutrition and start having a healthier dialogue around that and being educated on using food as, as fuel, right? And changing that lens. The younger we can do that, having healthy role models like yourself and other athletes and women and men even, because I think it's also a misconception that this is a female problem. In the athletic population, it's just as prevalent for men and maybe even in some sports, even more prevalent. But again, it's not talked about or discussed. And it might look different because it's normalized within different age groups or brackets or genders or you know, categories. And that's another important lens is to understand. So like, you know, maybe more cyclists are listening to your podcast but even then, it's a little bit different with road versus mountain bike versus cross, you know, and that's the interesting thing is I've seen the differences of what's expected and, and normalized. And, and I will say the thinness to a level of unhealth might be more of a something of a challenge for a road cyclist, for climbers, right, for high end pro tour riders. I'm not saying that cookie cutter blanket statement, but there are going to be times where we really need to, you know, especially for myself, be more on top of aware of that. And then also, like we'll discuss later on, like a lot of it is not about the body image. The underlying factor for a lot of it is that control and how we're fostering that XYZ of thinness or hitting a certain power number is going to mean we're winning bike races, which we all know that's that's not all it takes, right? It takes a lot more than just being at lean to do well. And I think that's what I want to empower people going forward is understanding that there's all kinds of multi-dimensions of you as an athlete that are important to keep you healthy and grounded and stable but if you aren't taking care of yourself physically and eating enough and getting enough calories, then that can lead to all kinds of lifelong issues, not just your athletic performance. Yeah. And like boiling it back to mostly recreational cyclists, because like most people aren't top level elite cyclists, like a lot of people, mm -hmm. they like riding their bike, but they also will go to the gym or they'll do other things. And We've been programmed to look at somebody and say, is this person beautiful or not? Mm -hmm. And we all want people to like us. We all want people to think that we look good. And I think the challenge is that the identity of being an athlete, whether you're elite or not, the mm -hmm. identity of being an athlete in our minds looks a certain way, like a real athlete looks like mm -hmm. X. And I actually mm -hmm. remember when I was like a brand new cyclist, there's a female cyclist I looked up to and she was incredibly muscular. And like, mm -hmm. I, I remember saying to myself, I was like 20 years old saying, when I look like that, then I'm a cyclist. Yep. And I think that that happens in lots of other sports. So it's hard for us to know what we should expect of ourselves. Like, how do we develop an expectation of what we should look like and of what beauty actually is? Because it's so confusing no matter where you look. Yeah, well, I mean, but it's inundated. So, I mean, none of us like are born going into a sport, right? But we're born being told that our bodies only look beautiful this way, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a socialized issue with advertising, you know, and how we take these beautiful women and then we still Photoshop them <laughs> and make them look unrealistic. So, you know, for me, it's like, well, of course, this is going to happen in sport, right? It's a skewed view. I mean, we go back the era of, you know, when you go into these museums and you see these people, these paintings of these and obviously they're painted because they're beautiful women, right? That's not what you see in the magazines these days, right? So it has shifted. And then there's become this skewed view of what beauty and health is. Because again, like you should treat your body as being strong and feeling grounded and fueled. And so I think what I try to do is say, 
so for myself, I, you know, hormonally, genetically wise, I am a leaner person just by genetics, right? By my body composition. And I think that's something that with that being said, there are some challenges that even people who are lean and athletic, it's hard to keep on the weight or to eat enough to keep up their calories, right? But that that makes you think about things differently, right? Versus someone who might have the opposite, who is has a challenge of leaning out because of their bone structure and their genetics. And so I think it's learning. But what I always tell athletes is that, you know, and I've had some really good discussions with physiologists and coaches that I work with who, you know, done a lot of good research on this is that if you're resting and you're training properly, but more importantly, you're resting and you're fueling properly, right? Like, so you're taking in the right caloric intake, healthy foods that are going to help you for breakfast, for your training, during your training. And then after training, your body will be where it needs to be to perform optimally. That's what we need in our sport right now. And then, and then we need, we need athletes like yourself talking about that and showing like, Hey, look, I'm doing this and look at my body right? Like it's healthy and it's strong and I feel good in my skin. And maybe I'm actually 10 pounds heavier, right? Cause I have more muscle on me, but I'm leaner. Do you see? But again, it doesn't need to be about lean and, and all that it needs to be about strength. It needs to be about like, look what I'm doing with all my things, my mental capacity, right? You're not just your body physically, you know, your body is a vessel for intelligence, for your determination to keep doing that trainer, right? But again, if you are depriving your body of calories and stuff, you're not going to be able to do all that you can achieve. And then you're not going to impact your mood. And then that's what leads to, you know, more chronic illnesses, overtraining, burnout, all that. So again, it's learning to change the dialogue, but understanding the awareness, like we're talking about, like it's there, it's a real thing. Believe me, there's not a week that goes by. I don't talk about body image and athletes needing to lean out and and feeling like, oh, well, I'm not going to win this race, you know, five months from now because I'm not at this certain number. And it's distorted thought. I mean, and I, you know, to some degree, I understand we need to be at a certain number, but I also think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you only think you can do X, Y, Z because of your weight. Yeah. And I think that you kind of brushed on a point about self-worth and, like a lot of people will gauge their self-worth based on how they look in a mirror, whether they're a cyclist or not, they'll look in the mirror and say, okay, am I lovable? And, no, definitely. They'll, and, they'll, and they'll put rules on what lovable means. And usually mm-hmm. when someone puts rules on themselves of what lovable means, they're going to make those rules hard for themselves to achieve. So what advice would you give people to look in the mirror and then to, I know without sounding like cliche, like to love yourself yeah. more when you look in the mirror, because every single one of us has looked in the mirror probably like pretty frequently and been like, ugh, like I don't like this about myself. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, that's a deep rooted situation too, because I think a lot of it is that skewed view. You know, self worth is a very emotional thing and it's going to be a heavy, complicated thing. And the body image, it varies with males and females. That I think will be something that you will most likely, you know, the research at least shows that distorted lens of body of beauty and self-worth is, is often something that a lot of women are going to have challenges with. Now, men, they'll be if they're they're thin and don't have enough muscle, right? Women, it's everything, you know? Um, I mean, even strong Olympic swimmers will feel really beautiful in their body when they're swimming and think like, Hey, next to my competitors, I'm awesome. But then they go to the gym or go to the mall and, you know, see other women that don't have these big shoulders and all this muscle and, and, and can feel ugly. 
right? In that context, right? So that's even another issue is that as an athlete, you are almost to, you are these other identities, which I always empower athletes to have. But I think it's another discussion that we need to have is about your self-worth as an athlete, but owning your athletic body that is strong as whatever you're doing, right? And to love yourself beyond the context of this externalized beauty and loving who you are and your personality and your flaws. And so what I usually work on is trying to see your body as conductor for movement, for conductor that, you know, hey, you're really talented. Like who gets to, who can do what you do and figuring out what is unique about your strength. And, and again, this still goes to the outcomes, right? So it's like, you're not X, Y, Z because you think, because again, when is it, when's it good enough? Right. So you lose weight, you have plastic surgery or, you know, people take extremes. Mm -hmm. That is not going to make you happy. It's just like the idea of money. Right. Kind of cliche. doesn't make you happy. Well, we all know that winning bike races doesn't make you happy. Mm -hmm. Right. It's got to be about the process and the journey. And but again, just like we always remember the negative of our races, we're always we're prone. We're like actually conditioned and wired to always see the flaws. You have to actively work at that. And not only for yourself we need to empower other women to have a dialogue. So to your friends, to your, your mother, your sister, your teammates, your, you know, all that males talking to women, other women about empowering them and not just saying like, Oh, you're beautiful. So like with kids, I don't ever say, Oh, she's so pretty or he's, you know, whatever. I always say like, Oh man, she's so smart. Right. So it starts really early that we need to be talking about Beauty is intelligence. Beauty is a strong personality, right? Beauty does not mean that you look like Cindy Crawford or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's dating myself. Some people might not even know Cindy Crawford is. Yeah, right. That, that was the person that I always did because, you know, I don't know why that generation where you're just like, wow, like that's that beauty, right? Um, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, there, it's fascinating research of what we think is beauty and, and different cultures think different women look certain ways are beautiful versus different genders. So it's, it's fascinating, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, no one can be worse to ourselves than we can. Right. So, or no one can be worse to us more than we can. So I think it's about healthy exercises. Now, when someone has a serious body image, sometimes there's an activity where you can look, look in the mirror and like try to say positive things about your body that actually might not Someone may not be at a point where they can even do that, right? Mm -hmm. So I usually start with just looking in the mirror. You know, you don't have to be naked in the mirror, but just, you know, get up in the morning, brush your teeth, and just look yourself in the mirror and say something positive about yourself and try not to make it to be about the physical piece. Then the next step might be, all right, once you're starting to feel more solid that you have these other attributes that are positive that you're, you know, proud of having and that are strengths, then we start to look at maybe taking a lens to the body and thinking like, oh, you know, my legs are so strong. My legs let me do X, Y, Z. My arms let me do this, my body, my core. And, and we're trying to change that lens and that distorted perception. Now, someone with, I mean, there's a lot of disorders I won't go into, but there is like body dysphor dysphoria and, and disorders that go to a whole nother level beyond kind of what we're talking about today. But that's something, you know, as, as a clinician, I, I would assess. It's like, you know, but most generally the distortion or the not loving your body is a deeper rooted thing. It's not really about the external context of what your your belly doesn't look like it has a six pack or whatever. Yeah. You know, I think it was really interesting when you said that you're not going to be any happier once you lose weight or I mean, mm -hmm. there's like a sliding scale with that, you, you know, but well, you think you are. No, that's the thing. You're, you're convincing yourself that you're happy, but are you really feeling grounded and happy just because you got thinner? 
Yeah, or like putting your happiness and your self-worth on something that is in the future or like like you right. said you're not really any happier like you're you might be happy in the moment if you win a race but like long term mm-hmm. it really doesn't do a whole lot for you. Like happiness has to come from within and confidence and self-worth have to come from within. So yeah, like body image is just one way or like one symptom to show that, well, maybe there's something wrong on the inside where you don't actually like yourself enough and you haven't done the work to figure out like mm-hmm. who you are and what it is that makes you uniquely you. Yeah, right. I mean, I think it is. It's it's going back to the root is what I would say the problem and figuring out the layers of your self-worth and your your own identity and, and where are you placing your self-worth? And so that's like it is it's going to be completely different and that's why for me it's really challenging and sometimes it's challenging when I you know when people ask me about this topic because it I can say some maybe more broad generalizations but it really is fascinating how differently we are triggered even within the different sports of what led to this right and then a lot of it is stems back to your upbringing right so if I get a you know, a 30 year old athlete dealing with some of this stuff. Well, this is stuff that didn't just happen because they started cycling, right? Like Mm -hmm. it shows up in other ways. And so that's something to think about is just, you know, your own relationship and creating a healthy relationship with your body beyond just the external aesthetics of it. Yeah. And like what you mentioned is looking at your body as something that helps you do things. And I remember in our first podcast, a vessel, that's what I like, you know, like a vessel, like it, you know, like for me, a lot of it shifted when it's like, you know, I got a doctorate, like my body has does all these different things. And that's another piece I always talk about, you know, balancing identities is like, you know, you're a cyclist, but yes, you can go hide. You can go do all these things. Look what you can do in the gym. Right. So that's the thing we want to be empowering them to understand that, like, it's not just about going fast on your mountain bike, (laughs) You know, like you need to be a well-rounded human intellectually, socially, spiritually, whatever, but also physically well-rounded. Yeah. And I remember you saying in the last, like the first podcast we did was like, think of how your body feels when you touch somebody that you care about. And that's Mm -hmm. like one way you can experience your body. That's a non, like a non-athletic way of using your body and thinking of it in a different way that brings you pleasure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, a lot of this also, I mean, you know, athletes are humans and, and if you don't feel comfortable and confident and, and grounded in your body, then, you know, that also could hinder relationship, interpersonal connections and sex. And I mean, all these things start to get negatively impacted just because you're not feeling comfortable or confident in your body to perform in one aspect of your life. And like, it just bleeds into everything else, unfortunately. And like you mentioned that women um, tend to have this issue more than men, but it's like when we look in the mirror, we don't actually see what we really look like. There's like a dissonance there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, I know I've personally experienced that. Like my husband will say, oh, wow, like you look so great or you're so lean or you're so beautiful or like all these really nice things. But I don't see that when I look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I see all the bad mm-hmm. things. And then like I'll see a picture of myself and then I'll see it in the picture, but I don't see it in the mirror. So like what what is that? Like why does that happen? Um, I mean, again, it's kind of a distorted reality. And again, it, it goes back to kind of what, you know, I work on with a lot of clients is that negative lens. Like you're looking in the mirror for the negative because your narrative is already that you're not good enough, that your self-worked is that you're not good, right? That you're flawed. So 
that's why you're going to see that, right? It is. It's it, it it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, because you're you're looking in the mirror for the reason, right? So we want to change the context of why would you be looking in the mirror? The same way with people, a lot of athletes don't even weigh themselves anymore, right? Or, or if people are trying to lose weight, they they want you want to be you know in your clothes, and that's a thing that I get a lot with cyclists too is like you know how they feel in their kit. Right. And that they feel strong, you know, that to some degree, I, you know, I would empower that versus someone assessing the negativity of their body. So it's like, you know, yeah, like I feel I still got some, you know, good training to do before I feel really like a winning in my kit. Well, that's a better way to look at it than like, you know, I have to only be at X, Y, Z number. Right. And that's something where, again, it's the context of sport. Like I'm not going to get away from ever having athletes who are going to need to be at a certain way or feel a certain way in their bodies, because I get that. That's a confidence booster. And to some degree, I'll assess to make sure it's not skewed and hindering them, but instead maybe empowering them because it's re- reality and they did it a healthy way. Right. And again, that goes back to the context. But if someone is looking at themselves and saying negative things about themselves and hurting their own self-image and, and getting on, on down on themselves, that's, that's not healthy. Right. So do you see the difference between those two? Yeah. And I really like what you said yes. about about like weighing yourself, because I think that like I've had my own issues with weighing, athletes like, do not myself. do that. <laughs> and I, something that's really helped me with weight with like weight is like that number can depend on lots of different factors. And I'll yes. give people an example is I've just got over being really sick and I got on the scale and the number was lower than I expected. And I was like, sweet, I lost weight, like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And then I started exercising again and boom, I'm four pounds heavier. And it's like, well, what happened there? Well, guess what? Like your body has more glycogen. You're retaining more water. You're like, there's, there's all these things happening. Yeah. So (laughs) that's normal. So I I think that something that we've talked about is focusing on the process of what you're doing to become better, not on a measurement of what you are deciding is better. So like a number on the scale Mm -hmm. would just be a measurement, but the process would be taking daily actions to eat a healthy and nourishing diet that's going to make you mm-hmm. a healthy human being instead of saying, well, I'm only healthy and I'm only good if the number on the scale says this so that my strength to weight ratio is this. It's like right. focusing on those, like showing up Sleeping. every day. And, yeah, sleep, yeah, all the things that are <laughs> Naps, no, and that, Massage, that, <laughs> getting rid of toxins, acupuncture. I mean, all those things are all going to help you. Again, if you do these things... And you have good education on the fueling aspect, your body's going to be where it needs to be to function optimally in a story. It's just believing in that. Yeah. And like how one person is, you know, certain people are optimal and performing awesome and they look way skinnier than somebody else who's performing optimally. And like myself, if I get too skinny, I actually am not very good on my bike. Like, and I'll stand next yeah. to somebody else who's way skinnier than me or, or leaner or whatever word you want to use. Yeah. And it's like, that's optimal for them. So it's, it's up, mm-hmm. everybody's individual. And I think it's important for people to realize that just because you don't look like somebody doesn't mean that you're never going to achieve a level of success. And your body changes as athletes. You know, I've had, I've had athletes over the years who were, you know, more muscular and had more body weight on them, you know, also they were younger. And, uh, you know, I have to remind my U23s and stuff like, you know, your hormones as male and women, like you, you haven't leaned out. And, and, you know, as you get older, your body just biologically will lean more, right? That doesn't mean that you're less than, you can't race and be awesome when you're younger. It's just that your body, you know, you just don't have the years of adaptation of muscle, 
and and time of training under you like some athletes um you know who have yeah i mean we get that we talk about this for hours because we get down to like you know wanting to look veinier and i mean all these things it's like (laughs) what what does that mean does that mean you're going to be faster no it's again it's these skewed views of what is fast and and healthy and what it looks to be athletic right which i that's why i think it's fascinating when you go to the winter olympics or summer olympics and you see all these different sports and these high-end what we see athletes and their bodies are all over the spectrum you know and that's beautiful i'm like wow you know because it it does need to be better i mean different and and nothing but nothing's better like just because this person's this way doesn't mean they're less of an athlete right it's just that in the context of their sport this is the norm. This is what it takes to be at this way, to perform well and everything. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Just the the ideas of what we perceive as good and then how we compare. And that is the root of everything. It's like comparing athletes. Y'all, you know, y'all get on their Instagram and you know, even Strava, you know, someone says doing this workout, they're going to be leaner. And I mean, I, I hear it all. <laughs> all the time. It's like, well, I mean, I get it because you're human, right? So I mean, I validate it. I mean, it is natural to do that. But every time you do that, you are taking away from your ability to perform at your optimal level, right? So comparison is a thief, right? So you're giving power to your competitors by comparing them to you versus them to you versus just trusting your process, trusting your village, trusting that you're doing everything as dialed as you can to be the optimal best version of what is your given gifts and potential in a story. Cool. Well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. So All right. we were talking about exercise addiction and you you said that exercise addiction actually doesn't exist. Yeah. So I want to talk about that a little bit and really go into it deep about the level of exercise people are doing to make up for certain lackings that they feel that they have? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I actually did a, I did an article on, on exercise addiction and I've spoken to it, I think on some other interviews, it's not an actual addiction, right? So like we have alcoholism, (laughs) you know, we actually have drug addictions. So there are actual clinical addiction patterns that, you know, people have, and there's a lot of research and support around, they're starting to be more research and ideas. But you know, when we use the terminology, it is just kind of a, it's just a terminology, it's not an actual diagnosis, right. But it's interesting, because it does start to look a lot like just like someone can have disordered eating, but not have a clinical eating disorder, right. So you have an addictive pattern, but does it mean you have like a true clinical addiction? Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you back up just one step and talk yeah. about really quickly disordered eating versus eating disorder so people can, you know, separate those two things in their mind? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, a lot of my athletes and what we talked about with body image could be just related to distorted eating, right? So they might have it. So it might be something where, you know, someone might just uh, be really stressed out and overeat and kind of do a little bit of binging on some sugars and and lead to kind of just overeating patterns, right? But then once the stress kind of goes away, like it's not like a thing that ever happens. It's just like this really stressful time in a period, uh, period in their life. Then, and that might happen with hormones, right? So like some women might do that, but it's not their activities of daily living, their function in life is not impacted negatively. It might just be a little bit, just like someone might have depression, but not have like a full-blown clinical depressive episode, right? Mm-hmm. We've all had depression, anxiety, or you're, you're not human. It's shades of gray. 
But the difference with, um, and a lot of athletes will have this disordered eating just because they're trying out new things. Like so-and-so is not eating on certain days. So I'll try that. And then they realize like, oh, I feel like crap. So I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's the thing. We might try a fast. We might try sh- certain shapes or certain Mediterranean, I don't know, some crazy diet. Right. And it's kind of leads to a disordered eating. So it's not, it's not like square meals. It's not healthy. It doesn't keep your blood sugar up. And yeah, so that's kind of that's one way to look at it. Now, a clinical eating disorder, right? And it will start with disordered eating, right? With skewed views, um, anxiety, maybe the body image stuff, dysphoria. Dys- you know, d- there's a lot of things that could go on. But a clinical eating disorder goes way beyond. It's a physical, it's a psychological, it's emotional, it's a social. You know, I say activities of daily living, like there's significant weight loss, right? If they're anorexic. So there's anorexia nervosa, there's bulimia, which is when, you know, you're self-induced vomiting, laxatives, excessive exercise can kind of be underneath bulimia and fasting, right? Now, again, you might be addicted to exercising per se, like we're saying, but not have bulimia, not excessive exercise to that degree, but it could lead to that, right? Or it could lead to possibly, you know, anorexia and start to cut back your calories and intake. So, you can either restrict or you can purge. And then now uh, another one that we've added to in the field of psychology, clinical psychology as a diagnosis is actually binge eating disorder, which is recurrent episodes of binge eating. So, you know, maybe feel, you know, sense of lack of control of overeating. And this is something that I see a lot more in some the male population, especially male athletes, but also just in general in athletes. Not that it's more prevalent. It's just now we have more of a diagnosis and a lens on it. And again, it is rooted kind of in that control. And so a lot of times, you know, athletes will try to starve themselves, get all the training in, and then all of a sudden get kind of stressed at night and then sit there and eat like, you know, seven bags of chips or something. Right. And it's a compulsion. It's a it, these are diseases like you're not choosing to have this. Right. The disordered eating kind of could be something that you just kind of it's like a like a stage that you went through. But then you can just you're easy. You can get rid of it. Talk to someone maybe about it and move on. This is something that it goes beyond, right? It's laced in anxiety, depression. Um, it's a disease that you will probably have to work on. If you get clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder, it's something that you have the rest of your life that you have to work on. That's what, something I want to really touch to is that, you know, when an athlete has had to get help, seek clinical help, maybe even be on medication, go somewhere for help. You know, sometimes athletes will be like, well, yeah, I got help for my eating disorder and I'm all great now. And you know, I, I'm back to racing. Well, that, no, it is definitely something that is, and, and coaches and parents and directors need to understand, and the athletes themselves need to understand that is something you will always have to work on. And that's why when someone is struggling with that, right, sport is really it's going to be a challenge. And I will, I will have athletes not focus on sport if they really have a challenge with that because that goes against their well-being because you're just putting them in an environment that's going to make it harder to get healthy. Okay. So yeah, I think that's a good segue to the, like you said that people can use exercise as a mode of purging if Mm -hmm. they're bulimic, but also people can use exercise as a form of punishment. They can use Mm -hmm. exercise as a form of control. So can you talk about like, like what an unhealthy relationship with exercise looks like and how you can have a more healthy relationship with exercise? Yeah. The unhealthy would be 
And again, it's complicated because, you know, we're speaking to more of some people that have that endurance, right? So then again, you have the endurance piece, which, you know, our brains are kind of wired for that adrenaline rush, for dopamine, for that euphoria, right? That's the piece that we're talking about that gets a little bit of addicting is that, you know, we actually become neurologically dependent on it, right, for happiness, for feeling good. That's why when athletes who have depression who maybe ride a bike, they think, oh, well, I'll just go ride and train. I'll feel better. And it doesn't make them feel better. It makes them feel worse. Well, the problem is they've got to rewire their brain to find something else that gives them pleasure, right? And so that's the piece. Sometimes it can lead to that addiction because, you know, you think that this is what's going to make me happy. So I have to make sure that I get my three-hour rides in because, you know, I always know that makes me feel good. Well, that's not realistic. That's just what you think, right? That's a skewed view. And so then people start doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're not there for their wife. They're not there for their kids. And it just snowballs into, you know, really unhealthy relationship with this beautiful sport. That was just something they did love to do, right? Whether it's cycling, running is another really, so it's pretty to a lot of these endurance sports because it, again, is that chemical imbalance that's telling us that like, okay, this is what is going to make you feel better. But then it almost takes over and it takes over your ADLs, your activities of day living. Like, so people will, you know, get up and do it two or three times a day, you know, ride in the morning, ride at night, you know, start to miss work. Then, then it starts to lead to like hormone imbalances, right? So they're not sleeping good. Their work goes down the drain. They're, you know, late They're, you know, they're not going to have social life because they have to make sure they get that five hour ride in on the weekend or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that people do. And I'm, I'm saying people because I used to do this. I was a runner before mm-hmm. I was a cyclist and I would go run on the treadmill if I ate like something unhealthy that day to try and zero out the mm-hmm. calories and make it go away. And it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. No. And, you know, and it, but that's just, that's what we think. Right. And so again, it's just the education and having, like we're talking about it saying, you know, Hey, sit with yourself, you know, reflect on that. That's why I say, what's the intention? So, you know, when you're a trained athlete and your coach is giving you your workout, why are you doing another hour after that? Right. Mm -hmm. So like, why are you going beyond this? Why do you feel like that you always have to be, you know, what's the problem with rest? And so again, that's what we're trying to, I'm trying to change it where, you know, people say that like, instead of having exercise addiction, you know, it's saying, okay, well, I, I love to have movement and I love to push my body, but to be able to do that and to do it where I know I'm doing optimally, right? I've got to really, I really need to be just 50-50 with my restorative stuff, right? Like my sleep and my stretching and my, you know, spending time with my family or journaling or reading or doing things that are also pleasurable that also are chemically going to balance us, right? So that mm-hmm. just makes us more balanced mm-hmm. in general and not letting one thing own our happiness, Mm-hmm. That we well, that we that we think is owning our happiness, because then eventually it leads to our demise, mm-hmm. and then you're you know and then you're injured or or I've had clients who don't even want to do that anymore because mm-hmm. they just it, they're so burned out and overtrained or so injured they may not ever be able to do that activity again. You know I think it's 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 tough though because and I, I mentioned that I have some bullet points I want to read and you've already mentioned uh-huh. some of these but if you're actually an athlete training for something you're actually going to experience some of these bullet points so they are and, and stick with me guys it's Training even like unhealthy exercise habits could be training even when injured or tired, working out Mm -hmm. several times a day, obsessing about training details, feeling angry or threatened when routine is interrupted, 
canceling or avoiding social activities and other responsibilities in order to exercise, creating mm-hmm. a daily schedule around working out, repeated comments about being or feeling fat, feeling anxiety and guilt when unable to exercise, happiness relying on productivity of workout, and defining yeah. one's worth based on exercise and fitness ability. And like we've all felt like I felt every single one of those things mm-hmm. and, and probably mm-hmm. like, to be honest, on like a weekly basis. So like mm-hmm. do in would you say that lots of endurance athletes actually have an unhealthy exercise habit because of our obsession with it? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's what I said. We're not professional athletes aren't healthy. <laughs> I mean, you're I mean, not. And that's why, you know, I mean, I, I think it's great that we have a culture now where everyone's got like coaches and and now we're getting more you know really good nutritionists and and i really you know encourage athletes to also work with nutritionists and doctor i mean and, and coaches who do have training in the physiology right because i see too many athletes young and their, their potential not being harnessed because they don't they're doing things that are above and beyond like you know, we're not in the doping era where you ride five, I'm, you know, when I have women riding hours that I'm like, I, okay, at first, if your races are never even that long, why are you doing that? Because it's not healthy. It's not healthy hormonally. Again, it's feeding that addiction is what it's doing, right? It's feeding that you think that that's what's going to make you happy and that you love it. And, you know, to be a pro athlete and be good, you can't like, that's cool. If you're just like me, like if I wanted to go ride five hours, I could right now because I'm not trying to go race. Now, would I want to do that? No, because I like to do other things that takes up your freaking whole day. Right yes. now, when I was what got me into racing, oh, I was saying what, what you said. Oh, I all that. Right. I'm recovering from all that. I still mm-hmm. have to. I literally 10 years later can go a day with just maybe doing an hour yoga and my brain's going to be OK with that. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't go you know, I have because I've been sick, but I mean, I still have, I still battle that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to go for a three hour ride, but I, you know, I definitely need at least 30 minutes of cardio or something, getting my heart rate up, which is healthy. Right. So now I look at it with the lens of, I'm just trying to maintain a healthy body and mind, right. Versus that I need that euphoria, but it took many years to get there. And I have many cycling friends who still 20 years, you know, 10 or 15 years after their pro contracts, you know, they did and they retired still seriously deal with that. And I think it, again, it was because of just, it's something we have to talk about. Like it is, it is hard. And to be the best, you can't be healthy, but you need to have the surroundings to keep you at least minimize it for you going to the dark side. You know, like I say, like there's light and there's dark sides of sport, but there is a lot of darkness. And and with that comes this obsessive and distorted view on what's healthy physically and emotionally. And that, you know, more hours, more pedaling is going to make me better is, is false. And we're starting to really understand that, that more gym, more yoga, more stretching, you know, fueling your body properly, more sleep, more happiness, more balance, more fostering other identities. And then boom, oh my God, I'm having the best season. Not only are you winning or doing better, but you're doing it more consistently, which is what I always try to do. I don't care about winning. I want to see you up where you need to be for longer terms, not just like win and then down, do good, bad, do good. You know, we want to see the build and we want to see you consistently be there and then, and then just keep getting better and having new goals and having new dreams and all that. Yeah. So it sounds like shifting your mindset into saying that rest is training. Sleep is training. Yes. Spending time with friends. If you have to think that way is training because it's helping you become an all around better athlete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I can say this till I'm blue in the face, but I mean, that's, (laughs) that's what I'm trying to do. 
you know, with our talk today mm-hmm. is, you know, educate. And, and then every time I have with my clients is just keep being that, you know, I have clients who say like, yeah, you were like this, you know, I say of mine, the angel or the devil, I don't know. But you're, I always remember what you said, Dr. Kime, you know, when I'm doing this and I'm thinking, no, I'm going to cut my ride. 30 minutes early because I really do need to get some stretching in today. And I'm like, well, that's going to be that leads you to a great career. I mean, honestly, the sign of a professional athlete to me is when they look at their training and their coach has them do something and they just don't feel it. Right. It's not a thing about motivation, but they know they've done some really good work. You know, maybe they just had some stress at school or or had a fight with their significant other and they're just not feeling it. And they're like, you know, I want to be in a better place physically and mentally to really do this workout. I'm going to take the day off. Or they go out and they try to do it. And 20 minutes later, they know, like, I'm not forcing this. I'm turning around and come back. I promise you, a good coach is going to be like, sure, awesome. I'll move it around. But, oh, my gosh, the athlete, you feel shame. You feel guilt. You think that your coach is going to think you're weak, you know. And, no, when an athlete can do that and just feel, like, grounded and confident and know, like, hey, that's going to pay off because I'm going to crush that workout, to me, that's that's a win Mm -hmm. to me. I'm like, all right, now you – I love that. I know it kind of sounds weird that your sports psychologist is so happy when you don't train, but literally that's what I'm saying, you know, because I want you to train hard and I want it to be, you know, it's quality, not quantity, and it needs to be balanced. So as much time as you're putting into your training, you need to be doing into your restorative stuff, but it can't be sacrificing one for the other. Yeah. And I think it's about still feeling good about yourself, even if you didn't complete the workout. Yes. And the like, self-worth piece. I used to force myself through workouts all the time. And now, like, especially in the last three to four years, mm-hmm. I feel really comfortable turning around and going home. And I'm always proud that I made that decision because I knew in the past I did some pretty unhealthy things in terms of exercise. Mm-hmm. Like I raced with broken bones. Like how yeah, no. that? And like, <laughs> I would just train through anything. And now it's like when I'm sick, even if I have a little baby sore throat, I don't ride my bike. And if I'm like feeling super fatigued, I don't ride my bike. But I think that that comes from years of practice saying like, I'm not less than if I didn't finish this workout, I'm actually greater. I'm actually better if I don't do this workout because it's, it's more than just pedaling the bike. Or like going to the gym and lifting those weights. There's a lot, mm-hmm. a, a lot more that goes into that. Exactly. No, I mean, that's, that's literally, I probably say that at least 10 times a day, you know, and just reminding them. And I mean, and that's why I want to empower, you know, athletes like yourself who are starting to get that. Like, I get it. It's not normal to feel like that. It's basically going against what the context of what sport is and, and I want you to be the best, right? So I want you to go out there and strive and push your body and, and you know, be on the ground because you did such a hard workout. But I promise you, that's euphoria, right? Like that feels good, but that won't happen unless you are rested. And because otherwise you're just going to be so depleted, you won't even be able to finish your workout. And then again, why are you training? You're not training to train. You're training to win bike races. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you need to be able to break it up because if we're always just doing all these miles and your whole life is like very cycle centric or run centric or whatever your sport is, how are you supposed to keep the motivation? And, and your brain doesn't, isn't wired to be able to say like, oh, this is Sonia doing this hard ride. And oh, this is her at a start line. Right. So you got to have all these other things in there to remind you that like, all right, I'm rested. I'm rejuvenated. I've checked all these boxes. I've done the training. I've done, you know, good recovery. I'm, you know, taught to my sports psych. I've done my, got my nutrition. I've checked every box. I got my objectives. I got a plan for the race. And then you just go race. The racing's the easy part, right? It's all that's time trying to figure out and being comparing ourselves and, you know, questioning our training and, you know, all that. 
So I think for each person, I empower them to, you know, surround themselves with a village that is based on the health and healthy mindset, but also encourages what we're talking about is that restorative training piece and, and and that's just as important as the physical training. Yeah. And like what you said with the village, hanging out around people who have healthy relationships with food, healthy relationships with exercise. And like, I'll be honest, personally, I don't actually spend a lot of time around other pro athletes. I need to spend time around regular people who have like like a normal life because it helps you. It helps other humans. It it helps you like keep in perspective what's really important in life. And like beautiful. Yes. When you're on your deathbed, you're not going to be like, oh, my gosh, I wish I did another five hour ride. You're going to say, I wish I spent more time with my friends or I wish that I spent more time Mm -hmm. doing other things in my life because you can't get all of your value from like exercise, like you just can't. No, your self-worth doesn't come. I mean, just same thing I talked to all my pro athletes. Like if you're in sport at at your level, it's entertainment. I mean, you know, like it's, it's for sponsorship. You know, we put all this pressure on the outcome and I'm like, no, look at it as your legacy. Like what kind of legacy do you want? And a legacy isn't results. Legacy is what what are people going to remember you by beyond your results? Right. And I think that's something to think about. And, and also, yeah, who are the people in your life? Again, it goes back. If you're always around saturated with just athletes, then you do, you get a very skewed view. And, and I want to go back to, it is very important. If you have just one athlete in a group of men or females that, you know, is clearly maybe not has an eating disorder, but is, you know, bragging because they didn't eat xyz or you know like stuff like that oh that can it's toxic mm-hmm. it is group thing and it can spiral out of control and it's something that needs to be very mo- well like monitored within team dynamics and needs to be called out so like if an athlete you know is listening to this and they experience this then i definitely would say you know talk to an adult or talk to you know the director or coach or something about that because that you could save lives because that literally can really trigger. And I definitely have clients who actually do have clinical, you know, eating disorders who, you know, are doing well, right? And they're they're still able to race at a high level. Um, they're getting proper treatment and all that, but it, they definitely can have flare ups, right? And it's always comes back to the context that someone in the group was having some disordered eating and then made them feel less than. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and I, I'm not saying that everyone is, but those are the people that really are going to be more susceptible to that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that we've talked about meditation a lot and that's definitely like a buzzword these days. But mm-hmm. when people are trying to take steps to have a positive relationship with food or with exercise, I think that that meditation is an important thing because it helps you pause when you start going off on a tangent about being less than because you're your weight isn't a certain number or you're not riding a certain amount of hours and you mm-hmm. see other people being able mm-hmm. to pause and come back. And like, I don't think anybody ever gets to a point of perfection where they're, they never worry about the food or they love their body all the time, but it's like important to just stop and come back to those moments where you can reframe it or, or like change how you're telling yourself these stories. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of it's going to be going is figuring out kind of the perfectionism that might be it might be laced in the OCD kind of obsessive compulsiveness, the idea that their self worth attached to, you know, how they're perceived to looking or and so I mean, there's a lot of things. So the mindfulness piece is a good way and meditation is a good way to bring you back to being kind of present with where you're at. 
So a lot of times, you know, what we'll have to work on with someone who might have, you know, kind of addictive patterns of exercise or some not healthy eating habits or, you know, has a clinical issue. Again, there's no cookie cutter. Everyone's going to be different. I'd say just, you know, someone listening who doesn't have a clinical issue, but definitely is like, you know, whoa, I, I see some tendencies of this within that exercise addiction. And I, or I definitely know, I'm, you know, maybe I'm not eating as healthy is, you know, get the resources, right? Talk to someone about it. I think that's an important thing because sometimes we get lost for the forest. For, we can't see the forest for the trees. So, you know, that's why it's important to have discussions like this is because you might be having this and not, at, you're in denial most of the time, right? So we're, we're going to tell ourselves this is healthy, right? Because we're going to see other people kind of do it and we're like, oh, this is fine. There might be a little subconscious piece going, okay, this probably isn't good. So talk about it. That's the first thing, as I tell people, is that awareness is to be able to talk about it and to admit it and to get proper help, right? Beyond just the things that you can do, like adding meditation or trying to change your lens. Um, a lot of times it's hard for us just to nix that on our own. And I think that's another thing is this idea that we should do it all on our own, should be able to fix ourselves, right? Uh-huh. A lot, these issues are going to be something that you probably need to you know, maybe you don't have to go to me as a sports psychologist. Maybe you can just talk to a teammate or, or a mentor or coach. Usually will be someone that would be good to talk to. And they might say like, hey, like this is beyond what I think I can do. Like I want to refer you. Again, that's why this education of what, you know, coaches should do or what they need when it's a good time to refer someone is important. But also calling it, you know, not calling it out, but like Speaking to a teammate, a lot of times we might see it, but then we think like, well, I don't want to say something because it might cause them or they might be uncomfortable. Believe me, your friend was, is going to thank you at some point or it doesn't matter. Maybe they won't thank you, but you might save a life if you see someone that is clearly having some challenges with addictive patterns of exercise or eating, you know, binge eating, you know, about or stuff you know, talk to someone, talk to them. And if you don't feel comfortable with that, talk to a professional to be able to understand how they can do that or talk to their parent or their significant other or someone. Yeah. You know, I think a big issue is that a lot of people don't feel like they can talk to anybody or they don't have Mm -hmm. anybody to talk to you. Like there's the friend where you're like trying to talk to them about something and they're like, oh no, you're fine. Or no, like they try and like make you feel better by saying you're fine when you're not fine. So like Mm-hmm. If people don't have somebody in their life, a mentor, a teammate, a friend that they can actually talk to, where can people find a resource to speak with a sports psychologist or a counselor or whatever it may be if they want to actually talk to a professional where either number one, they don't want anybody to know they're having a problem. So they'd rather mm-hmm. just go talk mm-hmm. to somebody that doesn't know them and doesn't know their life. Like, where do people go to find that? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, a lot of people might just think, okay, I'm going to talk to a counselor, um, you know, and I'm not saying like, this is serious, you know, clinical issue. You don't have to talk to us per se, just a sports psychologist. Now the, seeing a clinically trained sports psychologist might help because you are an athlete, especially if you're a pro athlete, that will probably be something you want to do is find someone. Even for me though, if someone's coming with clearly a severe eating disorder that, you know, I won't work with them if it is we're working on the eating disorder only because that's beyond even my training. Like they would need a, a psychologist who, you know, really it's a niche, right? So we're trained to work with that, but I also am trained to understand my, my expertise lens. And if an athlete needs to only work on their clinical stuff, then they need to just work on that. They don't even need to be competing, right? Or training. Mm -hmm. So that's another way. I, you know, I recommend them if they know, you know, me or if, you know, talk to an adult, talk to a coach. I mean, hopefully there's, you know, the USOC online. 
I would say most generally through sport, if you talk about this, someone might know someone who's had some challenges with that. I wish I could say there's like just a blanket resource. I mean, there's definitely hotline. There's a national eating disorder, which would be a good place. Um, you know, a lot of people will use Google this day. So it's like, you know, if you Google that, I'm sure all kinds of really good foundations come up with, and some do maybe have hotlines and stuff, mm-hmm. just like with suicide that you could call and get more information. But, you know, even for me, you know, you'll be giving my information, um, not saying I could work with everyone, but I would at least be open to, you know, helping someone be able to find the right references or referral process. You know, I have a listserv that will do that a lot of times where a lot of us as clinicians will go and we'll say, Hey, we have a client or we know someone in this area. Is there a, you know, a a psychologist or sports psychologist who specializes in eating disorders or something that would be that take taking on new clients, right? That's a good way. Like I said, it it is very challenging and really uncomfortable. And I want to validate that because, you know, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to break that stigma, right? We're trying to make it not when you have these challenges, you're not choosing to have these challenges, mm-hmm. but you can get help on it, right? So you do, it takes more strength and courage to ask for help than anything. And that's, that's strength. I mean, that's, that's better than anything is just your well being. And because again, you're not just impacting yourself. Like this starts to impact, you know, others and your people you love in your life and all that. So um, I just really say, you know, talk about it, reach out, reach out to me, try to find a psychologist in your area, may reach out to any of these national affiliations of eating disorders, you know, educate yourself on it. And any coaches or athletes that are listening, you know, it, it's something that everyone should go online and, you know, look up articles. I've written some articles. You go to my website. I've written articles on eating disorders. I've done, you know, a few other interviews. I've done an article on exercise addiction. We are starting to get the dialogue out there, but we'd still have a lot more work to do. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't talk about? No, I mean, I think we, we did talk about a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's a heavy subject and I think you hit on some really key points with it all. And, and I think, you know, again, the main thing is just to know that you're not alone and that you can't do it on your own. Right. So it's not something you just need to fix on your own. I would really encourage everyone to be educated, to support their friends, to help their friends and to support and help yourself by getting help. If you know that you might have some challenges or some disordered eating patterns or some symptoms that might be more of an addictive or over-exercising tendencies. Cool. And I also just want to offer to the listeners, like if anybody needs to talk about it, I answer every email, every message I get. So you can always Mm -hmm. send me a message about it because I've had my own personal experiences as my... And that's great. So yeah. What you're doing is to talk to people. I mean, literally, that's very powerful with any injury or any kind of stuff like that. There's a lot of research that shows that while you might be seeing a therapist, right, and working on it, it's really powerful to have either group therapy or having someone like another athlete who's been through it to be a mentor or to be a voice um, while you're going through these changes to try to get better. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think that, oh, that was a really, thank you. Really great, powerful. great questions. Yeah. Good discussion. Thank you for even like wanting to bring this up and, and adding this topic Um, in these discussions, because they're hard discussions, but they're really, really important and can save lives. And uh, the more we talk about it, the more comfortable people might be actually opening up themselves about Mm -hmm. their patterns or whatever the things that they have going on in their lives. So like, that's my goal is to just not make this some subject that's a a really taboo subject. I want it to be something that people are comfortable talking about and knowing that if you have 
any of these experiences, whether it's an actual clinical issue or if it's even just like disordered patterns that you're not alone Mm -hmm. and that almost everybody that I personally know has gone through some version of this. So you guys are not alone out there who are feeling that. Me too. I mean, you know, I've definitely, I've been there too. We've all have. And so I think that's the context that, you know, when I'm working with any of my athletes, you know, I was at that level and I understand how hard it can be. And again, it's not a choice, but you have a choice to get help and get better. And you can with, with the right resources and, 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 but it takes work. And so thank you so much for the time and the ability to kind of debunk some things and maybe shed some light and maybe get some people to get some help for themselves. Yeah, yeah, because it's definitely like you can make a positive impact in the world and and like whether you're spreading positivity or negativity about a subject, like if you are open and healthy about certain things, you there's a ripple effect involved mm-hmm. in that. Just like you're saying if there's someone in a group who has negative habits, it affects the whole group. So if you can be that person in the group who has positive habits, that can also affect the whole group. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. And if you guys want to get in touch with Dr. Kime, your is your website the best place? Yeah. So on my website, kimeperformanceconsulting.com, there's actually a contact form and you can just fill out it out and it sends me a direct e- and my email is also on there. I mean, that's the best way that you can get in contact with me if you have any questions or referrals or whatever, you know, with anything, even beyond just what we talked about today with sports performance or any other issues that come up. Cool. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care. After we finished recording the show, Dr. Chris and I were like, wow, we really went deep on that topic. And I'm so glad because I think it's really important to talk about this as athletes, as human beings, because we are constantly inundated with images of what we should look like and our feelings are tied to those. And just having the tools to know what to do whenever you start going down the rabbit hole to the dark side, knowing how to bring yourself back out and having a support team around you, whether it be friends, whether it be professionals, to just help you get to a point where you feel grounded and you feel good about your body and who you are. I think cultivating a positive body image is a lifelong journey. It's not a destination. It's not that one day we're suddenly going to just always feel good about ourselves and always feel good about how we look. But I think it's important to have the tools and just to know what to do so that you can practice self-love. And as cliche as that sounds, that's something that I work on. I work on when I look in the mirror, not staring at the things I don't like. And it's really hard to not do that. It also helps to have supportive people around you. Not that I'm saying you should get all of your self-worth from what somebody else says, but just having people that can help you see whenever your blinders are up and when you start thinking negative thoughts, I think that that's a really powerful thing and a really powerful relationship that you you can have in your life. All right. Well, I am going to Spain in a couple of weeks to do my first race of the year, the Andalusia stage race. I've done it before, but this is a new course. And the last time I did it, I raced with a teammate. And now this race is a solo race. So it's going to be really cool to go back to Spain, have a fun experience. And then I'm going to pop over to Portugal for a few days for an actual vacation with one of my best friends. So I'm really looking forward to that. I am trying to have more vacations. I know it might seem like my entire life is a vacation, kind of like Kramer from Seinfeld, but I think that in the spirit of balance, taking time away from the bike where you can focus on other things is really important. 
Big shout out to my homies on Patreon. Thank you guys. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your support. And for those of you that don't know what Patreon is, it is a website where you can contribute financially to the growth of my show. And that is something that I'm really trying to do is grow my show. If you don't want to contribute financially, just sharing it with your friends if you find value in this and just helping it grow to spread positivity and help people live a better life. That's why we're here. We're here to live a really awesome life. I've seen people take screenshots and post it on their social media of the show, and that is just a really easy way to do it. And don't forget to tag me because I'll send you a message saying thank you. I have a list of some really exciting guests coming up in the future for you guys, but I'm always interested to hear who you want to hear from because the show is for you. So if there's a guest that you're dying to hear, please send me a message. Go to sonyalooney.com. There's a contact form and you can get a hold of me pretty much anytime. Last but not least, I wanted to thank our podcast sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. And did you know that some carriers will penalize people for having a really low resting heart rate? Most of us endurance athletes have pretty low resting heart rates. Mine is something like 42. I didn't even realize that. I think that's nuts. Health IQ will help them recognize that this is a sign of our excellent health and fitness. So if you want to save money on your health insurance and spend it on bikes or socks, go to healthiq.com slash Sonia and mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. All right, guys, thanks again for joining me week after week on the show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and your adventures. And we'll see you right back here next week.